Amen. Everybody doing all right today? Not a rhetorical question, but I guess some of you treated it like it was. Uh, man, I am really happy to be here. Uh, I feel like it has been forever. Uh, and some of you think it hasn't been long enough, and that hurts, but that's okay. Uh, I, am, uh, I am glad between work in the preschool department uh, and, and the children's uh, last two weeks ago, and then strep hit our ho- house. I think it's funny, I was telling somebody, man, it's crazy how sicknesses run through our church, and just like everybody gets it. And I, but then I, I started thinking about that. That's also a blessing, because I am thankful that I have got close enough connection with our church that when one, one person gets sick, we share it all, man. We share the good, the bad, everything. So uh, I'm thankful for you. I'm thankful for our church family, man. So many that supported us while our family was out. We appreciate that. But I am happy to be back in the saddle today. Turning your Bibles to Micah. We are continuing our series in return. <coughs> we are in the sixth Minor Prophet, the book of Micah. Uh, We will be continuing Micah, Nahum, and Habakkuk. And we are excited about what God is teaching us through the Minor Prophets. You know, you don't go to the Minor Prophets. You wouldn't think you go to the Minor Prophets to to see God's goodness. The Minor Prophets are, if you're you're reading through the Bible in a year, or you're doing so, the, the Minor Prophets sometimes can become the books that you just have to grit and bear it through. If you've ever read through the Bible in any kind of reading plan or something like that, you know what I mean. Like Leviticus and Numbers, and then you get over to the Minor Prophets, and it sounds like they're saying the same thing over and over and over. But man, there is so much to be mined in those Minor Prophets. We talked about in Jonah, how God is a God who always shows mercy. He is a God who teaches mercy. He taught Jonah mercy. He showed Jonah mercy. And then he taught Jonah mercy. He showed the people of Nineveh mercy, right? As, as God used Jonah to deliver the message, repent, right? Because in 40 days, Nineveh will be destroyed. And God did a mighty work through Jonah. And then he began to teach Jonah as well. And so we are picking up in the book of Micah uh, to give you an idea of context. We have a timeline here. So uh, I've tried to use a little pointer. I thought about using like a little Mickey Mouse hand thing. Uh, Micah is right there above Isaiah. See Isaiah in the light blue, baby blue, whatever that is, turquoise. Uh, right above that is Micah. So it is, he is a contemporary of Isaiah and Hosea. Uh, he is writing predominantly about the south, about Jerusalem, but he is also including Samaria in much of his judgment. As you see, during his time of prophecy, Samaria would fall. They would fall to the Assyrians. And so much of what Micah prophesies is like what is happening or has happened or will happen very soon to the northern kingdom, southern kingdom, you are taking your notes. You're taking your cues from the northern kingdom and it's going to wind you up in the same spot. We know 136 years after Samaria is destroyed, Jerusalem is destroyed by the Babylonians. And so Micah is prophesying in this time that helps us to see what's going on in the nation at this time. There's two divided kingdoms, as Jeremiah talked about last uh, two weeks ago. There are two kingdoms. We got Judah in the south with Jerusalem as its capital. You have 
Israel to the north with Samaria as its capital. And that's going to be important as we begin to see the problems of the nations. Uh, but what we see today through Mike is that we serve a God who remembers his promise. I think about like movies I've watched in recent days of a guy is going off to the war, the hero, the main character is going off to war and his small child or his wife or girlfriend is there and she's like, oh, don't go, you could die. And he says, it's okay, honey or sweetheart, like, I'll be back. And you know, like, okay, nothing's going to happen to him. It's foreshadowing, right? Nothing's going to happen to him because he's promised he's going to be back, so he'll be back. Every now and then they throw you a plot twist, but in reality... If I'm going off to war, I don't have the ability to make that promise. Now, I can say it, but I do not have the power in order to see that promise through. I can say, hey, kids, everything will be fine. But I don't control the gun muzzle of the, of the opposing side, right? Like, I can't control those things. And so making a promise, we serve a God who makes promises, but by making those promises proves that he has the power to see those promises through. And we find it in Micah because let me tell you, Israel had significant problems. If sinfulness disqualified God's promise, then Israel had every reason to be very, very afraid. Look at Micah chapter one, verses two through five, as we see the problems of the nation. The problems of the nation. Hear you peoples, all of you, pay attention, O earth, and all that is in it. Again, he's talking not just to the nation, but the earth, right? He wants everyone to see what's going on. And let the Lord God be a witness against you, the Lord from his holy temple. For behold, the Lord is coming out of his place. Remember your dad? Don't make me come up there. Or don't make me come down there, right? This is what God is saying here to his people. I, I am coming out of my place. Like I am leaving the lazy boy. I am pulling the belt out of the belt loops. Get ready. All right. And this is what happens. He is coming out of his place and I will come down and tread upon the high places of the earth and the mountains will melt under him. The valleys will be split open like wax before the fire, like water pours down a steep place. I am pouring my destruction and judgment out. And the mountains will melt under him. The valleys are split open. I've read that. Verse 5, all of this is for the transgression of Jacob and for the sins of the house of Israel. What is the transgression of Jacob? Is it not Samaria? So the capital city, what is, what's going on? The sinfulness is not just in the region outside it. It has become the hub of operation, Samaria. And what is the high place of Judah? Is it not Jerusalem? These are places designated for worship. I would argue that Jerusalem was designated for worship. Samaria, it was convenient for them to worship in Samaria rather than Jerusalem. But God had called and dictated worship to be in Jerusalem. But these cities have committed incredible atrocities. 
They have committed incredible sin. And you read throughout the book of Micah, man, there are some very serious accusations that God levies through the prophet Micah. But look at verse 7. It gives us an insight into the main issue that Micah is facing, the main issue that Israel is facing in that day. All of her carved images shall be beaten to pieces. All of her wages shall be burned with fire and all of her idols I will lay waste. What's Israel's problem? Idolatry. When we think of idolatry, we think about it. I think about it in terms of what Israel dealt with in an Israelite context. I think about things like this. Like this picture of God's walking in the mountain. No, this, the great sphinx, right? Egyptian gods. They were huge monuments that were built to Egyptian gods to worship as places of worship, to worship these Egyptian gods. The people of Israel would have been familiar with the Egyptian gods because they were in slavery in Egypt. And many times in their wilderness wanderings, they longed to go back. They didn't just long to go back to a place. They longed to go back to the other gods because this god was you know, winding them up 40 years in a desert, right? When we think about idolatry, we think about this. Mount Sinai, the golden calf, which I think it's digitally done. I feel like it looked different than that, but it's fine. It's what I found on the internet. Um, We see idolatry, right? And we think of the golden calf there in the shadow of Mount Sinai and the people quickly leaving God as Moses departs and goes and gets the law of God for 40 days They write him off as dead and they make a golden calf to worship. We think of this when we think of idolatry. We think of this. This is Baal. When you read in the Old Testament stories of Baal and worshipers of Baal and Asherah, these were Canaanite gods that uh, were responsible for harvest and were responsible for having plenty. And, And so what they would do is they would worship Yahweh God, but then they always just had flavors of these other gods and they would make sacrifices to Baal, and so he was the god of fertility. You see the lightning bolt in his hand that he controlled the weather and all of these things that they would, they would worship. We think of people like this. We think of images like this. This is Molech. Many of you have probably seen pictures of not really knowing what you were looking at, but this is the god that required uh, sacrifices, like infant sacrifices to appease him, and a furnace would be lit, and they would be thrown into the furnace there in the presence of Molech, this was things that Jeroboam instituted uh, in his worship. The one who led Israel, the northern kingdom, to sin, instituted some of this, taking the cues from other surrounding countries. And when we think of idolatry, we think of this. We think of it as big things way in the future, like the end result of sin leads to something like sacrificing your children. The end result of sin leads to something like making a graven image. The end result of sin uh, leads us to wanting to go back to the gods of the Egyptians. And we would never fall for that. But as we read in God's word, idolatry is not an end. Idolatry is the beginning. Idolatry is where sin begins. I would argue that any sin in our life can be traced back to idolatry. 
What is idolatry other than placing something other than God on the throne of our life? No, our idolatry, the images that flash in our mind are like that, but I would argue that we've got some contemporary idols <clears throat> that we enjoy worshiping. I believe our idols sometimes look like this. And this right here, you've heard it referenced as the almighty dollar. Do you know why we call it the, they call it the almighty dollar? Because it has a tendency to take the place of the almighty in our lives. People that believe, say that they believe that God will provide, will spend their whole life chasing this in a career will ensure that their family has a 401k plan, but that their, their family could be lost and splitting hell wide open. They'll make sure they're financially secure, but spiritually they're bankrupt. All in the pursuit of this. The idolatry of this would lead many of us to compromise standards, clear standards that God has laid out for us we would compromise it because we don't see a way of getting around it and still having this to hold on to at the end of the day. And, and I don't think many of us are using this and wanting to say we're wanting to be the next Bill Gates, want some exorbitant amount of money. I think sometimes some of us are completely in idolatry just wishing we had a few of these left over when the bills were done being paid. Because it's that mentality that would cause us to rob God in the area of giving. They're idols. In our life. And no, they don't look like Molech and Asherah and Baal, but they're idols. We just went through a fun season, right? Anybody receive one of these? There's, obviously, these are harmless, and the Valentine's season is a good opportunity for us to be reminded about the people we love. By the way, we should love them. Love our Valentine's what? Okay. Love our Valentine's even when it's not. February 14th. Uh, but the, I use this to symbolize relationship. I think about in my life how many standards I compromised because I couldn't be without this. I couldn't be without the affection or attention of someone from the opposite gender. I would sacrifice and I would cheapen God's definition of love with my definition. In an attempt to prove love, I would prove love's absence. And I would find my adequacy in a man, in a, in a woman. I would find my adequacy. I'd find my adequacy in, human, in a human, in a woman. I'd find my adequacy in some relationship in my life. Oh, it's gonna be hard to walk back, I'm sorry. <laughs> I just need to throw that one out. All right, next. Let's see what else I can step on toes and get the attention off of my slip. Do what? Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, a lot of times in our life, a lot of times in our life, we fill our life with just an escape. You even feel that? Like, I just need to escape. I need to veg out. I've earned vegging out for a while. We'll run to things like this. Gaming systems, this could be a golf club, this could be Netflix, this could be your phone, 
just anything at all to distract us from reality. Can I tell you that God hasn't called you to be obedient to him in some fantasy? God's called you to be obedient to him in real life, in daily life. Yet we would always, I used to talk to teenagers, you know, they would talk about how difficult it was to find time, to spend time with the Lord. They always seemed to level up in Call of Duty. Funny how that happened. It's funny the things in our life that are negotiable and that are non-negotiable. So hobbies can become idols, those things that are in our escape. I would say this can be an idol. And I'm going to tell you, my kids are all about sports. We went and watched a basketball game yesterday and had a hootenanny of a good time. But man, there are people that to make sure that their kid can hit a ball further, can throw a ball further, can lift more weight, will sacrifice rhythms like discipleship in church and small group. And their kids are great athletes. Where are they at spiritually? Listen, none of these things are bad. I'm not holding these things up to show you all of the idols, what I'm pointing out to you is that idolatry isn't about the outside things. Ed Stetzer says, our idols are not golden calves or carved statues. Idolatry is not ties to any specific idol. It exists whenever we look to someone or something in the world around us to save and satisfy us. The idolatry is not outside. We can make anything an idol anything an idol. Any good thing an idol. My wife and I have the conversation sometimes about how we can make each other idols in our life. Finding a source of happiness and contentment and satisfaction in each other rather than a relationship with Christ. And the problem with that is I'm an idiot. So if you're looking for me To me, to have that satisfaction, I am going to dissatisfy you at some point. Anything can be an idol. It's not what's on the outside. I don't care what your idol looks like. I'm telling you is that it's an indication of the heart. God is concerned with our heart. Our idols, idolatry idolatry happens when we take good things and we make them ultimate things. What are the things in our life that are non-negotiable? Or better yet, a great litmus test to where we are at is, what are the things in our life that are more negotiable than our time spent cultivating a relationship with Jesus? We're going to struggle to build a daily walk with the Lord And we're going to make sure we've got time for the other stuff that we want to do. Chasing the dollar, chasing our kids around ballparks, chasing whatever it may be. These things aren't bad. And in fact, uh, the the perspective we have to have on it, St. Augustine says, idolatry is worshiping anything that ought to be used. The, the, The trick is to take all of those things and use them 
for worship. So idolatry is worshiping anything that ought to be used or using anything that might that is meant to be worshiped. Taking all of those things, money is a wonderful servant. It's a wonderful thing that allows us to do a lot of stuff. It is a terrible master. And I could say that about every idol that we've shown. It's when we look to those things to provide things that only God can provide. So what does our life look like? What are you investing time, effort, and energy? This is not just a Israel BC problem. This is a problem in our hearts. Paul would tell the church of Corinth, you're not, you're not divided by our teaching, you're divided in your own affections. It's our own affections that war with who God has called us to be. And so the idolatry of the heart led Israel to sin. I, Micah 3, 9. Uh, Hear this, you heads of the house of Jacob and rulers of the house of Israel who detest justice and make crooked all that is straight. They would seize property that was from the rightful owners that didn't have money. They would bribe the officials in order to get them to rule in their favor and they would throw out the families, just land grabs, just complete and total injustice, but, and, and many of them, their wives would be sold into sex trade. The, their children would be sold into slavery, taken, removed away from the promised land. When it talks about be, removing them from the glory, they're talking about removing them from the promised land more than likely. Who build Zion, verse 10, with blood and Jerusalem with iniquity. Uh, Micah 2.8 tells us that many of them, that violence had become rampant. And they just kill you to take your stuff as a sin to let you live, right? We just kill them and we don't have to worry about whose stuff it is because we'll just kill him, right? Its heads give judgment for a bribe. Its priests teach for a price. Its prophets pra- practice divination for money. It says in verse 11 of chapter 2 that their preachers are full of hot air. You may be thinking, you've got one of those. My wife might agree with you. These, the, the appropriate pastor for them is full of hot air and lies. Right? This is the people of God. These are God's people, and this is happening. Yet they lean on the Lord and they say, it's not, it's not the Lord in our midst. No disaster will come to us. This was the lie that they bought, hook, line, and sinker. Because God, we are God's cherished possession. And because God loves us, whatever we do, God will not punish us. Destruction is something for the enemies of God, not for the people. Of God. This is what the prophets would be bribed into saying, nah, man, you're good. Do whatever you want. You're fine. That'll be $20, right? So if anybody wants a good prophecy, just come on up for $20. I'll give you one, right? Like we, we see that today, right? We see that happening even today, right? I'll tell you what you want to hear. Just give me some money for it, right? Just start a line, There was false teaching in the day that taught that because they were God's people, they were immune to the judgment of God. And so God details to them exactly what he planned to do. Let's look secondly at the plans of the Lord. Micah 2, verse 3 through 4. Therefore, thus says the Lord... 
Behold, against this family, the house of Jacob, the house of Israel, I am devising disaster from which you cannot remove your necks. You're not wiggling out of this one. And you shall not walk haughtily, for it will be a time of disaster. In that day, they shall take up a taunt song against you and moan bitterly and say, we are utterly ruined. He changes the portion of my people, how he removes it from me to an apostate. He allots our fields. What is he talking about? And I'm going to do something. And I'm going to create Israel. They will be a taunt song. The idea there is they, they will tell tales of the disaster of Israel for generations. When I, the idea of this, I think about the boy who cried wolf. Every one of us have heard that story more than likely and every one of us agree that little boy got what he had coming because he lied. Don't lie, dummy, right? Don't say there's a wolf when we know there's a clear and present danger that there could be wolves. Don't lie and say there are wolves because you think it's funny. Or you going to get eight, right? You and the whole, all the sheeps, right? You're all going to get eight, right? We deserve, we, we, we recognize that. So what it sticks in our mind, this fable, this story sticks in our mind of don't tell lies. That's the takeaway, right? I think of more contemporary stories like the emperor's new clothes. Remember reading that in school? The dude that wanted to be on the front end of fashion, so much so he got the coolest and the best designers to come in and the designers couldn't think of anything real extravagant for him, so they decided to make him invisible clothes that he would wear at a parade before a little kid ousted him. <laughs> that dude's naked, right? What is that? Teaches us don't be proud. Don't, don't constantly try to achieve and be better than others, right? To be humble and meek and contrite. In the same way Israel was to be a taunt song. They were to be a byword and a parable. We'll sing a song about Israel, about what, it ha what happens to people when they take the love of God lightly. When they play too carelessly with obedience to the Almighty God. He's saying, I will literally destroy them. And while they're saying, all of my land is going away, he's literally talking about what's going to happen. Pagan kings. The pagan Assyrian king will come in with his troops. They will destroy Samaria and take them captive. And their land will be divided. Those same people who would maliciously take land from others, their land would be taken from them and be divided. It's ironic, isn't it? Babylon, the Babylonian king, right? We, we've heard about Daniel and some of these people, these Babylonian kings that worshipped many gods that were pagan would sweep in and destroy the entire country of Judah, take Jerusalem captive. And while all that is happening, it will remind the nations this is what happens when you take lightly Yahweh God. There'll be a demonstration and a story told of these people 
This is the plan that God has. The fact that the, uh, the people thought that God's love would prevent God's discipline. What Micah is teaching is that the love of God would necessitate God's discipline. God could not be loving and not discipline his wayward child. And so he would bring disaster, but that's not the end of the story. Listen to what Micah 3.12 says. Therefore, because you, Zion, shall be plowed as a field, Jerusalem shall become a heap of ruins and the mountain of the house a wooded height. What he's saying is this worship center, this Jerusalem being the hub of operations, Mount Zion, the place where the temple stood at the top of the mountain will literally be deserted. There'll be trees growing up. It'll be a laughing stock. The Lord will plow through Zion, through Israel, like a farmer would a field. But God's plan for Israel did not stop at his punishment. In fact, God didn't look to punish. And by the way, he doesn't look to punish you. He looks to discipline us. There is a purpose for why we go through what we go through. Micah 2 verse 12 I will surely assemble all of you, O Jacob. I will gather the remnant of Israel. By the way, a really fun study for you to do in the Old Testament is when you start hearing all the judgments of God and the prophets, you hear all the judgments of God, seek out the remnant. Seek out how God always preserves a remnant to be faithful to. I will set them together like sheep in a fold, like flock in its pasture, a noisy multitude of men. A remnant would be preserved, although they would have to go through difficulty, though they would go through a time of exile, though their country would be plowed through like a farmer, right? Though everything would be deserted and, and cast off, God would preserve a remnant. Uh, Micah chapter 4 verse 10 actually tells us that Babylon will be a time of rescue for Jerusalem. What in the world does that mean? Jer ba Babylon is responsible for the fall of Jerusalem. Well, he's not speaking physically. You ask anybody that has a testimony where they were walking in disobedience and God got their attention. And though there might be consequences for their disobedience, God ultimately got their attention and turned them back to himself. Babylon will be a time of rescue. What does that mean? It means in Babylon, when you are sitting in the reality that you are incapable of saving yourself, when you recognize how powerless and how puny you really are, then you will return. Micah is about the return. In exile, in difficulty, in suffering, in sickness, I will rescue you. I will find you as broken and as helpless as you are, and I will bring you back. I will restore 
you back. Micah 4, 1 through 2. Ultimately, the entire nation would be restored, not just the remnant that would be preserved in Babylon who would look to them, but the whole nation would be preserved. Micah 4, 1 through 2. It shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established as the highest of the mountains. It shall be lifted up above the hills and the people shall flow from it. And many nations shall come and say, come, let us go to the, up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us his ways and that we may walk in his paths for out of Zion shall go forth the law, the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. God would restore Israel. And I believe we've seen some of that in their return. I don't believe we've seen the end result of that. I believe that's end time stuff. But why does he restore Israel? Yes, it's because he loves Israel and for their sake, but it is not just for Israel's sake. What does it say there? The nations shall come. God's plan is just not for a people group. God's plan is for every tribe, tongue, and nation. The story, the taunt word that is the testimony of Israel's inability to save themselves will result ultimately in God being brought glory. And the nations of the world will come to Jerusalem. They will hear the law of God. They will learn to walk in the path of God. Y'all, Lindsay Lane North Church is here as a fulfillment of this prophecy. We are here because of this. We have heard a word from Jerusalem. We have heard a word from Jesus, who was the Messiah, who was our hope. We have heard the word. We have come as nations, not Jewish born. We have come as nations to receive salvation and to walk in the ways of the Lord. And I believe there's even more to come. What a beautiful picture of God's restoration. You know, we go, when you go through what you go through, when you suffer, when you struggle, can I just tell you it doesn't happen in a vacuum? It doesn't happen for you and you alone. But there are others that are watching. There's others that are taking notes. Does your life, the way that you endure hardness, does it point people to Jesus or to just focus people on yourself and your own frailty? Are we pointing to Jesus in this? Because ultimately, he is the one that can provide lasting peace. Let's look thirdly and finally at the peace of the people. Micah 4, verse 5. For all the peoples, all the peoples walk in the name, each in the name of its God. But we will walk in the name of the Lord our God forever. How does Babylon help Israel, it brings Israel to this point. All other nations will walk in all other paths, following all other gods. But regardless of what that means, regardless of the sacrifice that we have to make, come what may, we will follow in the name of the Lord forever and ever. 
an uncompromising obedience to God is the ultimate prophecy of the people of God in Micah. Israel would finally understand that love is demonstrated in obedience. Ultimately, sin would not derail the promises of God. All of these sins, all of this idolatry. Hey, I got good news for you, church. I don't care what you've done because your sin does not default God's faithfulness. Our sin does does not cheapen what Christ has done for us. There's hope that's found in Jesus as we are. If we are converting carbon, the oxygen into carbon dioxide in this room, there is hope for us. <clears throat> and so Micah ends with Micah chapter 7, 18 through 20, and he gives us a beautiful picture of the faithfulness of God. I mean, Micah is fraught with the unfaithfulness of humanity the unfaithfulness of Israel, his people. But we see the faithfulness of God in Micah chapter seven. Micah five tells us of a ruler who would be born that would make all of this possible. There'd be a ruler and he'd come from the city of Bethlehem, the town of Bethlehem. And he would be the Messiah. Micah six, eight tells the people to seek justice, love mercy, and walk humbly With God. Don't think more of yourself than you ought, but seek justice, not manipulation, not chasing after some idol. Seek justice because God is just. Love mercy, show mercy and grace to others, and walk humbly with God. Why? Because we see it in God Himself. Verse 18 of Micah 7. Who is a God like you? Pardoning iniquity and passing over transgression for the remnant of his inheritance. He does not retain his anger forever because he delights in steadfast love. He will again have compassion on us. He will tread out our iniquities underfoot. You need to hear that he will again have compassion on us. You will cast all our sins into the depths of the sea. You will show your faithfulness to Jacob and steadfast love to Abraham as you have sworn to our fathers from the days of old. They could have confidence in peace in the Lord to work out his plans. Despite their lack of faithfulness, they could trust in number one, they could trust in God's character. This is who God is. Do you remember when we talked about generational curses? We read Exodus 34, six through seven. It's the most quoted passage of scripture or referenced passage of scripture in the Old Testament by the Old Testament. The Old Testament writers quote Exodus 34, that the Lord is merciful and gracious. He's slow to anger. He's abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity, transgression, and sin, right? Like, we hear this, and he repeats it over and over. Jonah repeats it, and he's mad about it. God, I knew you would do this. I knew you would forgive. I knew you would, you would forgive transgression and iniquity. I knew you would restore these people. I knew you would relent your destruction. That's why I didn't want to share. He quotes Exodus 34. We see it here quoted. It is who God is 
to forgive. He is long-suffering and his loving kindness knows no end if we would return. Return to me. Why all the destruction? Why all the discipline? Why all the struggle? Because ultimately God knows that he's enough. He desires to bring his people to that realization. Finally, we don't just see God's character in this, but according to verse 20, we see the faithfulness to his promise. God has promised, and he who has promised is faithful. He made a promise to Abraham. He made a promise to Isaac and to Jacob and to all the fathers. And we don't have to, if we don't have anything else to hold on to, but his character and the fact that he has promised, we know that God will come through. We know that he'll forgive. We know that we'll restore. As long as we are willing to return. And so with every head bow and eye closed, Old Testament promise looked like, hey, I'll give you this land. Hey, I will bless you and you will be a blessing. Hey, the Messiah is going to come from your reign. That's what Old Testament blessings looked like for Israel. God has given us a promise. Through Jesus, we have promised the promise of God. 1 John 1, 9, if we will confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Listen, the first promise that we have to receive from God is that he can take our filth and make us new. That's the first promise. We have to believe and we have to have faith and confidence that God is who he says he is and he will do what he said he will do. His character and his promise. At the end of the day, that's all we have. It's the character of God and his promise to never leave us, to never forsake us, to forgive and to restore If you're here today and you don't have a relationship with Jesus Christ, I want you to know he's made it available for you. God's people is not, as I've mentioned before, God's people are not a nationality now. We are his church. We are purchased by his blood, his sacrifice. When Christ came, he put to death the power of sin and death and hell and the grave. So that if we would respond in obedience to him, if we would offer our lives to him, then he would forgive us and we'd have victory. So if you're here and you don't have that relationship with Christ, you're the most important person in this room, and I would ask you to respond. In Jesus' name, I would ask you to respond to his invitation to follow him as Lord and Savior. I'm here. would love to talk to you in just a moment. I'm going to say amen. We're going to stand up. We're going to sing. People are going to come. We're going to be praying move. Come find me. I would love to talk to you about how you can know that you have a relationship with Christ. Maybe you're here and maybe you know that you have that relationship, but man, there are other things that are on the throne of your life right now. Maybe you need to commit before God and others 
that you and your family are going to be different. All the nations of the world can follow after other gods. They can follow, follow after other idols that cannot satisfy and that will leave them high and dry. But we will follow the name of the Lord our God forever and ever. And maybe some of you as your family, you need to take that stand. This invitation is for you. This altar is open. You can come, you can pray, whatever it is the Lord would lead you to do. I pray that you would respond as his Holy Spirit draws. Father, we love you and we thank you for what you're doing in our hearts and our lives. And we thank you that you love us enough not to leave us alone, to bring things in our life, to bring us back to you. And Lord, we pray right now that we would fix our eyes on you in this moment, that as you call us, that we would respond to you, that you would forgive us of our sin, that you would make us new. God, so that we can serve you in spirit and in truth. Lord, we love you and we thank you for this time of invitation. Give us boldness to respond to you as you lead. In Jesus' name we pray, amen and amen. Would you stand to your feet as we sing? Would you respond? This altar's open, time for prayer with you or your family. We also have an opportunity if you need to, if you wanna talk with somebody about any decision, you can do that as well. But would you come as the Spirit leads?